if you would, uh, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. I, I sent Devin and Larry uh, several different messages uh, to ask, would any, of, would any of these serve this church? And this is the one they thought might serve you all this morning. So I'm going to let you kind of into our series in the Gospel of Mark uh, this morning. So Mark chapter uh, 6, and we're going to be focusing on verse 14 through 29, but I think for context... It's very helpful to begin in verse 12. So let's begin there and let's remember as we read that this is God's word, that it has power and authority to transform us, that we come under it to receive that authority this morning. So let's, let's read beginning in verse 12 and continuing through verse 29. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had seized, sent and seized John and brought him bound in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask for me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? She said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head, and he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Lord, please bless the preaching and the obeying of your word. I want you to notice something, if, if you could, just from the very outset, exegetically in description of this passage. I want you to notice a odd interruption about this passage. And perhaps you noticed it already, but just look down at your Bibles and just kind of put your, put your English teacher hat on. If you don't have that hat, just imagine you're an English teacher and you're grading this paper that Mark wrote. Just put your English teacher hat on. Look down there at verse 12. And let's read this sentence, and then I want us to skip 
all of the next story and jump to verse 30, okay? So just read that with me. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Skip to verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Now, if you were an English teacher or a mom helping their kid with their homework, I suspect you would say, I I think you've misplaced this story. You'll notice that you have a sentence here that says the apostles went out and did such and such wonderful things, and then they came back and Jesus called them to rest. But for some reason, you've inserted this somewhat grotesque and brutal story about John the Baptist and this awful dinner party. I I think you perhaps need to to move this somewhere else. This seems a bit of an interruption. Or maybe just get to the point where the apostles come back and then tell the story. Like, tell the story. Don't don't interrupt your apostles go. And by the way, there's a story John the Baptist was beheaded. And then they came back. Don't don't do that. This is a very odd interruption. And, And maybe if you read it that way, it struck you that way too. Like, wow, this is sort of out of nowhere. John the Baptist and this gross story and it's shocking and brutal. And can we get back to the apostles casting out demons? And literally, Mark writes the story that way. Now, here's the point I want to make. That interruption is not a mistake. It is the point. Mark didn't make that interruption by accident. It wasn't a a mistake where he thought, well, gosh, we've got to insert late edits. John the Baptist beheading. We didn't put it anywhere. Just shove it in here between the apostles coming and going. No, 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 that was intentional. That interruption, that gut punch interruption is intentional. When, when I was in the uh, Sovereign Grace Pastors College, I had a friend there who was from Russia, was born and raised in Russia. And at that time, and it may, may be still the case, um, all youth of a certain age were constricted. They had to serve a certain time in the military. And he told this story. He's a great storyteller. He told the story of getting on a bus with all these other young men and driving uh, you know, to, the, to the compound or wherever they were going to do their training. And he said, you get off the bus. And I, I stepped off the bus and there was a sergeant there. And the first thing he did when I stepped off the bus was punch me right in the face. He slugged me in the face and he says, welcome to the Russian army. Now, I think that punch was similarly shocking, and it also made a similar point. It wasn't that, that that sergeant was just randomly feeling like punching people. It wasn't just an, an, an odd interruption to an otherwise normal day at the Russian military compound. That punch was making a point about the nature of what they were beginning. That, that sergeant wasn't just randomly feeling angry. He, he was trying to communicate Welcome to the Russian army. Let me help you understand what you're about to go through. Welcome to the definition of what you have now entered. Bam, right in the face. Welcome to the Russian army. This story, this interruption does a similar thing. It's not random. It's not accidental. It makes a point about the nature of the mission. And actually, Mark does this all the time. He writes these stories like this all the time. They, they actually call it the Mark and Sandwich. Uh, commentators talk about there's a, there's a first part, and then there's a middle part, and then there's an ending part, and they inform each other. In this case, the middle story informs the nature of the apostles' mission. The death of John the Baptist defines the apostles' 
mission and the mission of all those who go after him. It's not a random story. It's not given so you can pass the John the Baptist class in your semester of Bible college. It, it is given so that you can define the nature of being a witness of Jesus. That's why this story is here. So what I want to do the rest of our time is just walk through the story and then explain the meaning that I think this, this big interruption has for us, and then we'll seek to apply it. We would put it this way. The mission of witnesses for Jesus is defined by the death of John the Baptist in a particular way. So let's walk through the story. The, the story begins with King Herod hearing about the news of Jesus. He, he hears about the witnesses of Jesus and Jesus' own power, and it has become known. Now, people begin to ask questions. Who is this Jesus that is casting out demons and healing the sick and raising the dead? Who, who is this individual? And the only thing they can think of is he must be someone powerful, someone anointed of God. So they instinctively think about John the Baptist, and they say, well, perhaps he's been raised from the dead because if he has resurrection power, that would explain these miracles. Or perhaps he's Elijah, the mighty prophet of the Old Testament. He could do some of these similar works. Perhaps he's back from the dead. And here he is doing these same kinds of powers. He's, he's a prophet, they said, like the prophets of old. They, they go back instinctively to the mighty men of God who did mighty works of God's power in their religious history. Well, Herod... Herod is convinced that the guess of John the Baptist is correct. And you get the sense, if you look down at your Bibles, of Herod's superstition. He, he, he feels almost as though he's seen a, a resurrected ghost. He, he, he looks at this man, Jesus, and he says, this, this has got to be Herod. This is, this is the ghost of Herod past coming back to haunt me. Uh, that, that's what's going on here. You get this kind of clinging, cringing fear in Herod's part. But for Mark, this question about who Jesus is, is making the underlying point also about the way that defines the mission. Who Jesus is, is the central question of the mission. These people don't understand who he is, but Mark has already told his readers, this is the son of God revealing himself as a servant to God's people. So this question for Mark is being given to the readers for you to answer. Who do you think Jesus is? Who do you think he is? This question on the lips of, of these perplexed people invites readers to answer that question for themselves. Who do you think Jesus is? But it's not just who he is, because he wants to go on and talk then about the death of John the Baptist. He uses John the Baptist uh, being a, a possible explanation for Jesus to transition to the story about how he died. John, Herod says in verse 16, whom I beheaded has been raised. For, Mark says, it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Fairly straightforward. Herod had a wife. Uh, he wanted to marry his brother Philip's wife, probably for political reasons. You can read about that in history, actually. There was a whole war that happened because of the former wife's dad was really angry and came and attacked Herod because of this whole situation. And he marries this woman who's married to this brother, while the brother is still alive, and John, courageous, undeterred, and direct, confronts him. You're supposed to be the leader of God's people. It is not lawful for you to do this thing. He confronts him, un unafraid, unashamed, directly. Well, obviously the wife, who probably liked being the new wife of a ruler of Herod's uh, prominence, she's angry at John. 
But she can't put him to death, it says, because Herod had a sort of grudging, almost superstitious respect for John. It says he was perplexed by him, and he was afraid of him because the people respected him. So he's a political maneuver. He, he doesn't want to burn any bridges with the people. And he has a certain awe at John's anointing. So he's superstitious. He's political. But he wants to appease his wife. And so he comes up with a compromise. Okay, dear, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put him in prison. Well, why can't you just kill him? No, we can't kill him. We can't kill him. That would start a riot with the people. We'll put him in prison. Look, dear, I put him in prison. Go down and mock him if you want. He's right down there. He can't do any harm. But no, let's not kill him. Let's just leave him in there. And he sort of equivocates and tries to compromise. So there he is, John the Baptist in prison. And then Mark says an opportunity came. This opportunity would have been an, an opportunity of evil. An opportunity came when Herod had a party. Herod had a party. All the leading military commanders and men of Galilee are there. Now, Herod was not actually a king. We call him King Herod, but he was really just a provincial ruler commissioned and supported by Rome. But he wanted to think of himself as a king. He wanted to call himself a king. So this banquet would have been a a king-like extravagant way of showing his power and prominence to the important men of the area. Well, here comes Herodias' daughter in, and she dances. And if you detect a certain sensual immorality here, you would be right. So there is a, an inappropriateness to this whole scene, scene, a grotesqueness that Mark is seeking to portray. She dances. Herod wants to display his king-like power, and so he says, whatever you want, even up to half my kingdom, the kingdom he doesn't actually own, but he wants to act like a king, up to half my kingdom, I will give it to you. The girl goes and talks to her mother. And Herodias knows this new husband very well. He knows that this new husband's main goal, main idol, is power and his own position. So she seizes that opportunity because he's boasted before all these guests, up to half my kingdom, young lady, whatever you want. And she comes out and says, I would like the head of John the Baptist. She adds this grotesque detail on a platter. On a platter, D. Edmund Hebert, the commentator, says this. Alexander comments that this gruesome request for service on a platter was probably added by the daughter of her own accord as a hideous jest, implying an intention to devour it. There's an intentional grotesqueness about the question and the story. It's, it's sort of as if Mark is portraying this, this evil debauchery and grotesque appetite of this crowd. And, and Herod is sorry because now he's been brought to the place where his desire to appease the crowds and those who would seek to honor John and his desire to appear prominent before his leading figures, now he must make a choice. And Herodias chose shrewdly. She chose shrewdly because Herod will not embarrass himself. He's sorry, but he is not going to embarrass himself in front of these guests. If he is such a great king, what does it really matter if he lops off the head of some prophet who questions his morality? So he sends and beheads him, and in comes this grotesque meal for this devouring gathering. Mark wants this story to be shocking. 
a, a punch to the face. He, he wants it to be grotesque. We've been talking about this delightful ministry of Jesus stories and people being healed. And there's a certain a, a kind of joyful celebration. All of a sudden you have this, this grotesque violence, a kind of wicked appetite that is present here in this story. Indifference to this righteous, holy man. A, a kind of ugliness is present in the scene. A, a violence that, that comes with a shock into the scene. John is buried reverently by his disciples. And then you get to the next verse. The disciples returned. And Jesus said, come away by yourselves and rest a while. Now, now what is this story trying to do? What, what is it trying to accomplish? Let, let, me, let me make a couple of points here. I, I think it's trying to do a couple of things that we need to understand. So we understand how Mark wants us to define the Christian mission, the witness to Jesus Christ that we have all inherited from these very apostles. He's wanting to define a couple of things. First of all, he's wanting to define who Jesus is. He's wanting to define who it is that these guys are representing. Remember, the witnesses go out representing Jesus. They come back to Jesus. And in the middle is this defining story. And this story, actually, if we look a little deeper, it says something about the nature of that mission, and especially the identity of Jesus. And he does this prophetically. It's not an accident that Mark references at the beginning the possibility that this was Elijah. Maybe Jesus is Elijah. The reason he does that, they did that, was that there was a prophecy in the Old Testament that Elijah and Elijah too would come before the great day of the Lord. Before the day of the Lord comes, there's going to be an Elijah that's going to come. So they were expecting that. They were predicting that. The prophet Malachi said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So they were anticipating an Elijah that would be the forerunner of the great day of the Lord. Well, Mark describes this story in ways that are incredibly similar to what happened to Elijah. Incredibly similar. Let me read a quote from Mark Strauss, what he says about this. The passage, this passage about John the Baptist, has parallels to Elijah's conflict with Ahab and Jezebel in the Old Testament. Both stories concern an angry queen bent on destroying God's prophet. Both involve inappropriate marriages. Ahab to Jezebel, which led Israel into Baal worship, and Herod's remarriage to his brother Philip's wife Herodias, which was in violation of the Old Testament law. In both, the king is weak and vacillating, fearing the prophet, but prepared to listen to him. While Jezebel was unsuccessful in her attempts to kill Elijah, Herodias is successful in eliminating John. Now here's the point. Why would God, first of all, arrange this situation and then Mark describe it in such a way that if you knew your Old Testament, you would say, wow, I feel like I've, I've seen this story before. Wow, this is like biblical deja vu. Like what? We have this evil queen. She married somebody. He wasn't supposed to marry her. I, I've, I've read this story somewhere. Where was I know. Elijah, that's incredibly, that's just like what happened to Elijah. There was the wicked queen and there was the weak king and then there was this moment and he's trying to destroy him. This is like, just like that. Wow, John the Baptist is sure like Elijah. Wow, he, even to his death, he was like Elijah. I mean, he dressed like Elijah and he was out in the wilderness like Elijah. Man, it's incredible the coincidences of life. 
Mark is presenting to them something that is right in front of them if they have eyes to see it. John is like Elijah to his very death. He is like Elijah. What does that mean? He is like Elijah who comes after Elijah. He is inviting them to see something. If they just will have eyes to see it, it's right in front of them. They were just asking, who is Jesus? Well, you know, what's interesting. There was just this guy and man, his life was like Elijah and his death was incredibly like Elijah. I mean, it's interesting. Now, who is Jesus? It's right there in front of them. If they will have eyes to see it. And again and again, Marx makes that point. That the truth is right in front of people if they will have eyes to see it. He does it in the story, this, this, this story and many other stories in Mark. There, there's a, a moment in uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, which I'm sure many of you have read or seen, uh, where the company comes to a, a great door into a mountain and they're trying to get in. But there's a riddle on top of the door. It says, speak friend and enter. And they assume it's a riddle, but they they puzzle over it and puzzle over it. And the wizard thinks, and he just can't come up with the right password. He says, I can't think of it. I'm trying and I'm trying and I'm trying. And finally, Frodo comes, the the leader, the the guy there with the company. And he says, oh, no, it's it's just, it's right there in front of us. Speak friend and enter. So they say a special word for friend, and there opens the door. That's like this passage. It's right in front of you. Who is Jesus? Jesus. Well, the guy that came right before Jesus is just like Elijah. And the Old Testament said the guy that would be like Elijah is going to come before the day of the Lord. So the Elijah guy, the Elijah lookalike, Elijah 2.0, he's going to come. And then that's the forerunner of the day of the Lord. So the, the indication of the passage is, what does the death of, of, of John the Baptist like Elijah say about the identity of Jesus and the nature of the apostles' mission? It says they are representing the Messiah who comes as the day of the Lord. It says that's who you're representing. You are representing the great coming of the Lord to his people. That is your identity. Now that is really important identity. Because when you go out and and bring this mission and this witness, apostles, on your journey, you are doing no less than sharing the good news that the day of the Lord has come. That God promised Elijah would come before it, and he did. And now you get to bear witness to the day of the Lord that has come in Jesus. It, it says, not in a plain way, but in a way that you can see if you have eyes to see. This is the day of the Lord. This mission is the day of the Lord mission. This witnessing is the day of the Lord witnessing. This is the Messiah you're talking about. This is the great coming of God to his people. I think it says who Jesus is. I also think it says what witnesses of Jesus should expect as they bear witness to him. I think Mark does this, first of all, because the death of John the Baptist also anticipates the death of Jesus. It's important to see those parallels as well. William Lane says that between chapter 6, 17 and chapters 15, there are points of parallelism worth noting. 
Herod's respect for John as a righteous and holy man anticipates Pilate's attitude toward Jesus. Herodias' hatred for John and scheming to achieve his death finds its counterpart in the hatred of the Jewish leaders towards Jesus. Herod's yielding to the pressure imposed by the circumstances is the prelude to Pilate's yielding to the demands of the people. The note of burial in a tomb with which the present narrative concludes anticipates the request for the body of Jesus and his burial. This is not a coincidence. God had anticipated the death of Christ in countless Old Testament patterns and symbols, and it's not surprising that John's death, the death of the last prophet before Jesus, would be one final foreshadowing of the death of Christ. It points to his identity, and it points to the suffering of the people who will bear witness to Jesus. This punch that comes in the middle of the story, is saying two things. Who are you representing? And what is it going to be like when you represent him? Who are you representing? Welcome to the Russian army. Welcome to the mission of Jesus. This is what it's like. You're representing him, and you are going to face similar persecution from the world in all of its grotesque debauchery as it seeks to oppose that mission. That's the point of this Markin sandwich. That's what it's saying. It's saying it's not just about John the Baptist. It's saying, look, if you want to understand the nature of this mission, apostles go out, they come back. What happens in the meantime? John the Baptist is brutally murdered. What should you learn from that? You need to learn who Jesus is and what it's like to bear witness to him. Because that's the nature of this witness that these apostles are going out and doing. It defines it. It anticipated it. And then it defines it. So it would be done to the great witness and prophet who came before the Lord Jesus. So would it be done to the Lord Jesus himself. And so will it be done to every witness who faithfully represents the Lord Jesus since his death and resurrection. We have a a message. And our message is even better than John the Baptist. We have a message that there is a true king. There is a true Lord that the day of the Lord has come. It has arrived and he has in his death and resurrection offered salvation to all. And yet the world is ultimately not that different from Herod in that party. There are still people who are vacillating with a mild respect for religious people and people who are outright determined to destroy the church and all witnesses of Jesus. It is grotesque in its debauchery. It is grotesque in its violence. Is it really that different today? And here we have a witness and an expectation of being a Christian that needs to be defined by the nature of John the Baptist's death. What does it mean to be a witness to Jesus? It means you're representing the coming of the day of the Lord in Jesus Christ. And it means you should expect to face similar opposition that John the Baptist faced. Look, look Mark is very kind. Mark is a kind leader. He he comes to the church, probably the church in Rome, that is facing unbelievable opposition and persecution. And he comforts them by saying, look, this happened before. This isn't surprising. Welcome to the Christian mission. And I think if you read in in Mark's terms a, a different opinion, he's basically saying, would you, would you rather be associated with this grotesque party or be the holy man who reverently goes to meet his maker, having been faithful to the end? 
do you really want to be associated with this kind of debauchery and grotesqueness? Or do you want to be a witness to Jesus Christ, following in the footsteps of John the Baptist and holding fast to the truth? That's what he's offering to the people of Rome. I think that's what he's offering to us. It's what he's offering to you. And, and brothers and sisters, you know this, this. This world and even our own culture, it continues to give signs of this kind of opposition. This, this kind of pressure and vacillation and weakness and anger and cruelty. It continues to come against God's people in key ways, in, in cultural ways, in social ways, around the world, in violent ways. This passage is meant to inform us, look, don't, don't be afraid. Don't be surprised. This has happened before. This is the nature of the Christian mission. We serve a crucified and risen Messiah. We serve one who, who, whose, whose witnesses faced consistent opposition. Don't, don't be surprised. Don't be dismayed. Don't think of this as an aberration or something unusual or that there's a kind of unique grotesqueness to our current day and age. Not really. I'm not sure there's anything more grotesque than this party. This party's about as bad as it gets. Immoral, seductive cannibalism. I mean, that's about as bad as it gets. So what's he saying? Look, there's, there's nothing you're facing today that is uniquely unusual or grotesque compared to this. This has happened before. You can be faithful to this witness too. Welcome to the Christian mission. It, it's hard. It's going to be hard. But if you know that, you can trust the Lord and be faithful and persevering. Let me just give a couple of brief applications in things we should be ready for in light of this passage. In light of the nature of this witness, what should we be ready for as the church? Well, we should be ready to confront wickedness. Like John the Baptist, we should be willing to confront clear wickedness, not, not in, in any person anywhere out there, but where God gives us a clear opportunity uh, right in front of us to speak the truth and confront wickedness. We should not shy away from that opportunity. We should be like John the Baptist where we would say, I, I would rather speak the truth and suffer than be silent about the truth and live a life of comfort. Be ready to confront wickedness where it is present and needs to be confronted in your life or in your relationships. Be ready for superficial respect and outright hatred. You know, sometimes I think the church in the West is, is seduced a bit by superficial respect, like what Herod had. There's sort of a well, grudging respect. Ah, it's, I appreciate that. It's, you're kind of a holy man. I, I was, <laughs> we had a conversation with someone recently who's associated with our, our, our school where we meet as a church. And, and she was saying, you know, I, I kind of appreciate that you're here because it gives good juju to the building. <laughs> I thought, oh my, okay. <laughs> That's, that, but I, I kind of get that in the culture. There's sort of this view of, yeah, good for you. Good for, there can be got grudging respect. And sometimes the church can be disappointed and deceived when that grudging respect is not loyal when the chips are down? Look, there's a big difference between Herod and a Christian. Herod has grudging respect. A Christian will stand with you in the face of trial and danger. Big, big difference. So don't be deceived where there's kind of grudging cultural respect. There's, there's no guarantee as Americans that people will respect you as a Christian, or even if they do, that they will stand with you when it's really going to cost them something. Herod represents countless people in history and in our own world and culture that have a grudging respect, but not a willingness to stand in front of and defend Christians when the real difficulty comes. Don't be surprised by that. Don't be dismayed by that. Don't be shocked by that. It's happened before. It will happen again. Finally, be ready for the loss of freedom and the loss of life. 
this is one of those moments where I think God's word has to define our expectations rather than maybe even our, our cultural or, or possibly even our, our, our heritage uh, in this country. Uh, do I hope Christians are always free? Do I hope we're not persecuted in this way? Well, surely I hope that. I hope that I want to do anything I, I can righteously and legally to prevent that. But that's not a guarantee from the Lord. It's not a guarantee that, well, since we've come in post, you know, the Constitution, God has promised that there will be no suffering for Christians. <laughs> you know, I mean, I hope, I hope there isn't any, but, but that's not a guarantee from the Lord. This, this is God's word. God's word says, here's what you should expect. If you're not facing this kind of difficulty, it's very unusual and be a reason to rejoice and thank the Lord. But if you do, don't be afraid. It's happened before. It will happen again. The Lord who was crucified and rose is watching over you. John had a delightful reception in heaven when he was faithful to the end in spite of this grotesque party that sought to devour him. You will too if you are faithful to the Lord Jesus. You will too. You will too. And so you don't have to worry if this party comes for you. You don't have to worry about it. Because you know what? When you walked off the bus and into your Christian mission, the Lord told you, be ready. Be ready. You're serving a king, but in this world he's despised. His followers are despised. His witnesses have been persecuted. Be, be ready, but, but don't worry. Be ready because God knows it's going to happen and the resurrected Christ will resurrect you in the end. Mark ends with this sort of invitation for faith. You see the darkness, but be confident. Don't be afraid. Be faithful. Continue pursuing justice and righteousness before in the presence of the Lord. Don't, don't, don't be worried. Trust the Lord. Be prepared. Because this death defines the nature of that mission. I think it guards us from an idol of comfort and a fear of the loss of freedom, a craving for a peaceful, easy life. It guards us from that, but it calls us to follow in John's footsteps, the footsteps of the holy ones who have gone before us. Charles Spurgeon says this, and I'll, I'll close. He says, what? Do you expect easy lives? <laughs> I love Spurgeon's way of, of calling us out. Do you expect easy lives? While some have sailed through seas of blood and have fought to win the prize, are you wearied with a slight skirmish on dry land? What would you do if God should suffer persecuting days to overtake you? Be ye the pillar and ground of the truth. Let the blood of martyrs, let the voices of confessors speak to you. Remember how they held fast the truth, how they preserved it and handed it down to us from generation to generation. And by their noble example, I beseech you, be steadfast and faithful. Tread valiantly and firmly in their steps and acquit yourselves like men, like men of God, I implore you. As people of the cross, people of Christ, we have joyful courage in the face of certain opposition. Joyful courage in the face of certain opposition, knowing it is coming and joyfully willing to associate ourselves with the crucified Lord who is now risen and his persecuted people who have gone before us. That is our calling. That is our, our joy. And that is our privilege of doing that together until the Lord returns, until we get to see him face to face. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for this story in your word. Thank you, Lord, that, that you are kind to prepare us 
so that when we face little moments of difficulty, little moments of social pressure, big moments of social fear, worries about the cultural changes and what's going to happen in the future, Lord, we can go back to your word and say, none of this is surprising. All of this is expected. And we look to you. We trust in you. You have seen our road before we were walking it, and you see the end of it. And we look to you to bring us safely home. In Jesus' name, amen.